Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian. The Argument from Design Quote, Everything in the world is made just so that we can manage to live in the world, and if the world was ever so little different, we could not manage to live in it. End quote. These days, nearly a century after Russell delivered his address, we would call this subspecies of design argument an argument from fine-tuning. The fine-tuning argument is a particular type of argument from design having to do with the conditions of the earth or the parameters of the universe, for example. However, there is no reason to suppose there is a fine-tuning problem. First, most Christians believe we have immaterial souls that instantiate consciousness, personal identity, etc., and that it's our souls that will go on to live in eternity, in the immaterial, non-physical realms of the afterlife. On Christianity, it doesn't appear that the physical, material world needs to exist at all in order for us to exist, let alone hold very specific traits for us to exist. The material world only needs to hold specific traits for you to exist if you believe you're composed of nothing but matter. That being said, how can I argue that there is no fine-tuning problem for life? It's obviously true that altering the parameters of our universe would drastically alter the conditions of our universe. Human life would almost certainly not arise under different conditions. That doesn't mean, however, that some other form of life or complex consciousness wouldn't arise. We might not emerge, but some other beings could, and then they could also go on to present the fine-tuning problem, since they couldn't exist if the conditions of their universe were different. The mistake theists are making here is called the fallacy of denying the antecedent. If P, then Q. Not P thus not Q. If these conditions, then life. Not these conditions, no life. That's the argument they're making. But this makes as much sense as saying, if I drink hemlock, I will die. I did not drink hemlock, therefore I will not die. If P, hemlock, then Q, death. If not P, no hemlock, then not Q, no death. But it turns out there are other ways to die. Likewise, there are almost certainly other ways to have conscious life. Christians have pushed back and argued that they know conscious life wouldn't emerge if the constants of our universe were different. For life to be physically possible, certain numbers in basic physics, for example, the strength of gravity or the mass of the electron, had to have numbers falling in a certain range. The universe, its basic structure has to be just right in order for life to occur, particularly intelligent, conscious observers like ourselves. Universes with slightly different conditions can't support life at all. I have absolutely no confidence in our ability to predict what would happen under vastly different parameters of nature. Things would be different, sure, but can we say much more than that? Consider the fact that we don't even know why our universe is the way that it is, and we have the benefit of being able to observe this one. Why would anyone be able to predict what a different universe would look like with perfect accuracy and predict every contingency? Am I seriously being told that we can build perfect models and make perfect predictions about the conditions of a universe that we can't observe? 
take a look at a set of equations that describe our universe. When you contemplate these abstract formulas, do you think to yourself, yep, that's a life-permitting set of equations? The answer is no, you do not. When you look at the strength of gravity or the mass of the electron, you are not able to predict the emergence of human life down the line. So where on earth do you get the confidence that you can accurately imagine the entire history and evolution of a universe and say life or complex consciousness wouldn't emerge? We can't even do that with the universe we have the benefit of observing. To quote Sean Carroll, As skeptical as I am about the ability of physicists to accurately predict gross features of a universe in which the laws of nature are different, I am all the more skeptical of the ability of biologists, or anyone else, Christian apologists, to describe the conditions under which intelligence may or may not arise. End quote. I think the best formulation of the fine-tuning argument is from Robin Collins. 1. The probability that our universe would be life-permitting on naturalism is low. 2. The probability that our universe would be life-permitting on theism is high. 3. The fact that our universe is life-permitting provides evidence for theism over naturalism. As I was just explaining, I think that first premise is unjustifiable. The punchline is we don't know the probability on naturalism. All we can say is that it's probably somewhere between 0.01 and 0.99. Though perhaps one reason the scale might tip against the idea that we're special is that you're always more likely to find yourself in the majority by definition. We could call that the Copernican principle. You're not special. The reason I still think this is the most defensible formulation of the fine-tuning argument is that all we have to do is assume the probability on naturalism is less than 1. Take a look at that second premise. The probability that our universe would be life-permitting on theism is high. The second premise is understated, if anything. I would actually argue the probability equals 1 on many classical versions of theism. Since the probability on naturalism is a big question mark, we can't be certain that it's not 1, but if we suppose that the probability the universe would be life-permitting on naturalism is less than 100% as it is on theism, the fact that our universe is life-permitting provides evidence for theism over naturalism. That evidence might be rather slight, depending on how you fill the probability in the first premise. So the argument is defensible, but it's defensible because it's so weak. To say this is a convincing or persuasive argument is either disingenuous or merely reflects your prejudice. There is no reason to suppose that it's unlikely for complex consciousness to emerge. There is no reason to suppose there is a fine-tuning problem. As for watchmaker-style arguments about organisms, Russell seems confident that Darwinism works as a decisive answer to any such arguments. Quote, since the time of Darwin, we understand much better why living creatures are adapted to their environment. It's not that their environment was made to be suitable to them, but that they grew to be suitable to it. And that is the basis of adaptation. End quote. Either we adapted to the environment, or the entire environment was adapted to us. Either the puddle took the shape of the hole, or the hole was designed to fit the shape of the puddle. Russell goes on to point out that if we grant the less reasonable option there, you'd think an omnipotent and omniscient designer could have adapted the environment a little more competently to suit our needs. Quote, When you come to look at this argument from design, 
it is a most astonishing thing that people can believe that this world, with all the things that are in it, with all its defects, should be the best that omnipotence and omniscience has been able to produce in millions of years. I really cannot believe it. Do you think that if you were granted omnipotence and omniscience in millions of years in which to perfect your world, you could produce nothing better? End quote. Cancer in children, deadly hurricanes, and disease-carrying mosquitoes are all features of the best of all possible worlds? I'm not sure what free will has to do with any of those. Think about the latter example. Mosquitoes are carriers of malaria and dengue. Why? Mosquitoes can't transmit HIV. Is there some reason they can carry dengue? Is there some morally sufficient reason, of which we finite humans are ignorant, that God had to create things this way? If God is good, presumably the answer is yes. But here's a recent headline from Science Magazine. Quote, Genetically engineered mosquitoes resist spreading any form of dengue. End quote. Is there any particular reason God didn't do this to begin with? Non-omniscient, non-omnipotent human beings used science to do what God couldn't do, or didn't care to do. As I mentioned in part one, who made God can be interpreted both in the context of ultimate causes and in the context of design. Who made God is not a great objection to many formulations of the cosmological argument, because many theists maintain the universe must have an explanation other than itself, and whatever the explanation of the universe is must be something which explains itself. The chain has to end somewhere. The thing which explains itself, whatever it is, is uncreated and not explainable in terms of anything else. Here we can repurpose Russell's response to the first cause argument. If there can be anything without a cause, it may just as well be the world as God. If there can be anything which is not explainable in terms of anything else, it may just as well be the world as God. I would say that who created God and who designed the designer are related but separate objections. I see a distinction between the question of design and the question of ultimate causes. One relates to the origin of things, like matter or gods, stuff transitioning from non-existence to existence. But who created God could be presented in the context of design, the evolution of matter that already exists. It gets at the problem with design as an explanation for order, structure, and complexity while presupposing existence. We can presuppose the existence of stuff and argue against design as an explanation for the structure and complexity of that stuff. The point here is no different than those who argue against a homunculus as an explanation of human psychology. If there's a little man in your head pulling the levers, what's in his head? Who's in the homunculus's head? Another homunculus? A homunculus doesn't answer the question, it just moves it one step back. Design is no different. As an explanation, it commits special pleading. It establishes a principle, all complex and ordered things are designed by an agent, and violates its own principle, without explaining why. Evolution by natural selection can explain how we transition from the simple to the complex. There is no infinite regress or special pleading on Darwinism, as there is with the homunculus hypothesis in psychology or the design hypothesis in biology. Arguments for Deity. 
One form of this argument, says Russell, is to say that there would be no right or wrong unless God existed. He invites us to grant, for the sake of argument, that morality is real and objective in some sense. Quote, The point I'm concerned with is if you are quite sure there's a difference between right and wrong, you're then in this situation. Is that difference due to God's fiat, or is it not? If it's due to God's fiat, then for God himself, there is no difference between right and wrong. And it's no longer a significant statement to say that God is good. If you're going to say, as theologians do, that God is good, you must say that right and wrong have some meaning, which is independent of God's fiat, because God's fiats are good and not bad, independently of the mere fact that he made them. If you're going to say that, you will then have to say that it is not only through God that right and wrong came into being, but that they are, in their essence, logically anterior to God. End quote. Euthyphro's dilemma remains one of the most powerful and interesting objections to a theistic conception of morality. In its 2,500-year history, there has never been a convincing rebuttal, except to move the problem one step back from God's commands, or as Russell says, his fiat, to God's nature, where the same dilemma presents itself. Russell also makes a comment at the end of this section that seems to be grasping at the evil God challenge, as we call it today. Quote, You could take up the line that some of the Gnostics took up, a line which I often thought was a very plausible one, that as a matter of fact, this world that we know was made by the devil at a moment when God was not looking. There is a good deal to be said for that, and I'm not concerned to refute it. End quote. The argument for the remedying of injustice. Then there is another very curious form of moral argument, which is this. They say that the existence of God is required in order to bring justice into the world. In the part of this universe that we know, there is great injustice, and often the good suffer, and often the wicked prosper, and one hardly knows which of those is the more annoying. But if you are going to have justice in the universe as a whole, you have to suppose a future life to redress the balance of life here on earth. So they say that there must be a God, and there must be heaven and hell, in order that in the long run there may be justice. Though it's not unheard of, it's rare that this argument is made explicitly. I have actually heard this made before in person. But a just world belief seems to be hardwired into human psychology. Of course, there's no reason to believe that there will be more good than evil, ultimately. That would be nice if it were to turn out that way but it's purely wishful thinking to say that it definitely will, or that it has to. Arguing that there must be a god to remedy injustice is to argue in a circle. Assume a just world hypothesis, which is ensured by God. And if this just world hypothesis makes sense to you as a believer, then you've conceded a point that I make all the time, that theists and non-theists get very upset about. Christianity prevents you from taking action and trying to improve the world because you don't think it's a real possibility that evil could outweigh good in the end. You don't think that human history depends entirely on us and our actions, so our actions are a lot less significant on Christianity. Human history, on theism, is only partially determined by human action, while on naturalism, barring randomness, it's entirely determined by human action. God is ensuring that the scales ultimately balance out in favor of good, while on naturalism, 
humans are the only ones paying attention to the scale. All the suffering and injustice you can imagine is not an argument for God. It's an argument against God. Russell invites us to imagine, quote, Suppose you got a crate of oranges that you opened, and you found all the top layer of oranges bad. You wouldn't argue. The underneath ones must be good, so as to redress the balance. You would say, probably the whole lot is a bad consignment. And that really is what a scientific person would argue about the universe. He would say, here we find in this world a great deal of injustice. And so far as that goes, that is a reason for supposing that justice does not rule in the world. It affords a moral argument against deity and not in favor of one. End quote. If we witness unnecessary evil, gratuitous suffering, that is a powerful reason to conclude that goodness doesn't rule the world. So if it's not already clear, I've been using this Why I'm Not a Christian outline as a way to touch on a bunch of different arguments that I've wanted to talk about. Like, I wanted to revisit the fine-tuning argument. I wanted to talk about the natural law argument. And the Why I'm Not a Christian format seemed like a useful vehicle for talking about several disparate arguments that have been on my mind lately. I recently appeared on Robert Stanley's The Right to Reason podcast, debating Aaron Rabinowitz from Embrace the Void on consciousness and philosophy of mind. So check that out if you're interested. Again, that's the Right to Reason podcast. I have a new patron to thank, Joel Mulenickel. Thank you, Joel. And I also want to thank Andromeda Kumar, not Andromeda Kumar. And thanks to all the patrons whose names I've completely screwed up. Podcasting is very time-consuming, and you guys are the reason that I can take the time to do it. So thank you. Speaking of which, I want to thank my Hall of Fame patrons, Jesta, Phil Stilwell, Richard Crossan, Pre-Nifty, and Rory B. Murkowski. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter, where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you still want to persecute Christians, you can follow our social media on Twitter or Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.